we want every kid to walk through this school to be inspired, yeah. um, to come come away with something, yeah. something where they can give back. And, and it doesn't matter, it could be anything, but just for, for kids in general, all they want to know is that someone care. LeBron James made headlines recently with the news of his I Promise School in Akron, Ohio, to help at-risk students have a nurturing foundation for success. The news of the $8 million school sparked a social media outpouring of support for the basketball star. At the same time, halfway around the world, deadly airstrikes in Yemen raged on for the third consecutive year. Lise Grand, an American Deputy Special Representative of the United Nations Assistance Mission for Iraq, declared the port city of Hodeidah just one airstrike away from unstoppable epidemic. The port is the primary gateway for food and humanitarian supplies into the war-stricken country, where 75% of the Yemeni population require some form of humanitarian help or protection. On this episode of The Oxford Comment, we are taking part in the conversation surrounding humanitarianism in conjunction with the United Nations World Humanitarian Day. The Day of Honor is held every year on August 19th to pay tribute to aid workers who risk their lives in humanitarian service and to rally support for people affected by crises around the world. We will deep dive into what humanitarianism is, who humanitarians are today, and how social media efforts can go beyond just a hashtag. Let's take a step back here and talk a little bit about the origins of humanitarianism. So humanitarianism is an active belief in the value of human life, whereby humans practice benevolent treatment and provide assistance to other humans in order to better humanity for moral, altruistic, and even logical reasons. Humanitarianism was publicly seen in the social reforms of the late 1800s and early 1900s, following the economic turmoil of the Industrial Revolution in England. Humanitarianism is seen as a duty in comparison to other compassionate acts such as philanthropy and charity, which are noted as a voluntary act. Humanitarianism can often be associated solely with large-scale, wealthy donations made by celebrities. From Oprah to George Clooney, their influence is easily recognizable and using their status to bring awareness and change is commendable, to say the least. But on World Humanitarian Day, the United Nations looks to bring awareness to the efforts not being heavily talked about despite the dangers aid workers are facing. This year, the UN is continuing their campaign from 2017, hashtag not a target, to continue to bring attention to the millions of civilians affected by armed conflict every day. 
The UN describes how the efforts to end child soldiers and women being abused are being thwarted as humanitarian workers attempt to deliver aid and medical workers try to treat the wounded and sick. They are being directly targeted and treated as threats. In our first conversation, we sat down with Sarah Gellert, a current member of the editorial board of Health and Social Work, for information on what humanitarian efforts look like today. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Sarah. So just to get started, can you tell us what the key humanitarian efforts are that exist today? I think this is a time at which we're really seeing a lot of, of social movements. I've been in several countries in the last couple of years and am taken by how similar some of the issues are. We see people fleeing areas of war and violence to find safer places to live for, for themselves and their families. We see in China, rural Chinese moving to urban areas to find work and you know, having a great deal of problem doing this. We see indigenous or other people responding to the loss of land due to climate change, the wildfires we're seeing, changes in sea level. Um, This is all happening uh, at a time where there's a growing move, especially in the United States, towards individualism and profit and materialism and competition. And I think it's become easier and easier to turn your back on human suffering. Also, Lying is becoming increasingly socially sanctioned to get ahead individually, and this is modeled, as we know, by people in power. And we see also in in the U.S. and elsewhere social isolation increasing. The number of people who have close confidence has grown, but for people living in poverty and those who are uh, displaced, this really means increased marginalization and lack of access to human and other resources. And as groups become further and further separated, there's a lack of understanding and a mistrust, and uh, it just seems to be worsening. So people are fooled into feeling that they can buy safety and contentment, but it really doesn't seem to work that way. Many socially isolated women with breast cancer in Chicago, in a study that I did there, told us that They didn't even know where they fit into the universe or why they were on Earth, and that really they had the poorest outcomes. So I think we've forgotten how powerful altruism is in helping others and helping uh, the people who are more on the front lines, the humanitarians. So I think cooperating and being part of social networks is is more fulfilling, and we need to really get this across. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. And we do have some of the children that have been separated from their parents and just um, trying to meet their needs with with few resources. And it takes some very special people because you're not going to get a great deal of recognition for this right. It's sort of internal, more internal rewards, I think. But, But we've got humanitarians we know through history and at present and advocates, but but there are a lot of people just behind the scenes doing remarkable things that we don't know about. Who are some important humanitarians that stand out to you throughout history? You know, in history, we've got Harriet Tubman, who rescued enslaved people and helped them move to safer environments with more opportunities via the 
Underground Railroad, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was part of the Indian independence movement against British rule. Nelson Mandela fought against apartheid to provide independence and opportunities for South Africans. We know Mother Teresa in Calcutta worked with, with people called untouchables. This has happened throughout history, but for every one of them, I'm sure there were many people behind the scenes. Can you explain the difference between an advocate and a humanitarian? I've thought a lot about that. They really overlap a lot. Advocacy and humanitarianism overlap, and we, don't, we certainly need both. But to me, an advocate is someone who publicly supports or recommends a particular cause or policy. So they might not be actually out there doing it, but because they're respected, uh, people will listen to their recommendations about a cause or a policy. So this might be Hollywood stars, film stars like Leonardo DiCaprio, or, who publicly denounce things that promote global warming. I don't think it really matters where they are, but they're both important. And the advocates really support the humanitarians, to my mind. So you've got people in many roles um, that are all important. And I think journalists, the role of journalists is important, too. Journalists have a part in shedding light on atrocities and shedding light on the efforts that humanitarians are making to ameliorate human suffering. Some journalists have gone into war zones so that people watching television or reading accounts are, are, are aware of the extent of suffering. Um, I think that's another important role. And I, I want to say from humanitarians to advocates to journalists, um, there are also just those of us who can do all we can to be aware of this and support and, and teach our children of the importance of, of really looking out for others. You mentioned there is a lack of facts when we discuss some humanitarian campaigns. Do you think social media plays a role in this? It, it is an issue. It's, I think we need to use social media for the good. Um, at our school, we found that there were five to ten children who'd been um, separated from their parents uh, at a, an agency in Colombia, and um, that the agency was really hard-pressed to fly the children back to either you know, meet with, be reunited with the parent or if they were unsponsored, or they were going to be sponsored. And so I just put it out to our alum, and the response was overwhelming. It's like people wanted to do something good, but it needed to be organized. And in that case, the social media really worked. So I think we can use social media to bring out the good in people, and um, we just need to not let it be used by others and, and complain about it. I think we need to sort of... Um, own it a bit ourselves and use it for the good. The social media points that Sarah brings up are important and interesting, and we dig into the complexities surrounding humanitarian work and social media with Belinda Gerd and Alexandra Yordolian from the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Let's hear more from Belinda and Alex. 
I'm Alexandra Yordolian. Um, I work on social media and other, at times, traditional comms um, for the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Um, I began my career eight years ago in the UN system, working for the UN Refugee Agency um, in Geneva, where I um, established and built their social media program. Um, I've been with OCHA for the past five years, um, and I've been um, working mainly in headquarters, but I've also worked on, on emergency deployments uh, as a humanitarian affairs officer in uh, Ukraine. And more recently, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, um, I was in Bangladesh in Cox's Bazaar on the border um, with Myanmar. Um, and uh, it was a very rewarding experience. Um, I'm pleased to be here and to be working on uh, the Not a Target campaign. My name is Belinda Gerd and um, I also work with Alex uh, at OCHA, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs of the United Nations. Uh, so I work in campaigns um, and my background is quite different. So I come from the private sector. I have 15 years experience running global communication campaigns for different companies, big brands. Uh, and the way I got into the UN uh, was quite not traditional, I suppose. Um, I have a background in journalism and design. And I knew someone who was um, who did my master's in journalism with me. And she was leaving and I was in New York at the time and we were able to cross over. And so with my experience in campaigning and communications, um, it's quite unique to these campaigns that we run for humanitarian affairs, especially World Humanitarian Day and especially Not a Target, which is obviously what we're going to talk about today. So it was an interesting way into the UN. And once you're in, just don't leave. <laughs> so how did you, how did Not a Target begin? That's a really good question. Um, so not the Not a Target hashtag is not ours. It's not a United Nations hashtag. It's not an OCHA hashtag. It was actually developed by MSF um, in 20... It was a few years ago. 16, I think. Yes. Um, when there was a bombing of a hospital in Kunduz. Um, and they started this hashtag as a call to action to say that hospitals, civilians, um, children, families, medical workers, humanitarians are not a target when it comes to conflict. And that slowly took off. And it's still, it's still a massive call to action. And then for World Humanitarian Day last year, um, the office picked it up and decided to run with it so that it could involve the entire humanitarian community, so that we could rally the entire humanitarian community around this hashtag, this call to action. So World Humanitarian Day isn't an OCHA-owned campaign per se. It's it's run on behalf of the humanitarian community because it's a GA mandated day, which happened in when in 2003, there was a bombing on the Canal Hotel in Baghdad and 22 humanitarians lost their life. So a couple of years after that, the GA mandated it into World Humanitarian Day. So it's a humanitarian commemoration. Right. Um, and then... OCHA just is the coordinating body for the humanitarian community in response. And so we coordinate the campaign, the large-scale campaign. Does that sound like I covered it? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Not a Target was something that was created separately from the UN, but now is part of the World Humanitarian Day campaign. 
Yeah, so so MSF is obviously not part of um, of the UN, but they're an NGO and they are obviously on the ground in, mm-hmm. in conflict and in crisis. And as we've seen with the escalation of Syria and Yemen, the reason this 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 hashtag and this call to action has become so um, important and something that we can rally behind is because there is an increasing number of casualties of civilians in um, in conflict. So each year the Secretary General releases a report, Protection of Civilians report, and it outlines the terrible things that have happened in different countries to different groups, humanitarians, medical workers, children, families, um, caused by governments and non-armed groups. So I think it's poignant in this time that we use what we have out there to rally behind as opposed to creating new things, right, every Mm -hmm. year. So we have the campaign every year, but what's the point of creating something new when this is something the humanitarian community is already behind? Right. It's already in the public arena. People are already using it for many, many things, so they see something in the news. It's not great to call it a campaign. It's a, And this is why we've called it a movement, because mm-hmm. campaigns live and die. They have a reason and then they kind of go. But this is a movement that started in 2016 or 2015 when this, when this um, bombing of the hospital happened. It's rallied the globe and now we're giving it even more life and more breath and hopefully with the living petition which is what what we've launched this year giving people a concrete action to take to at least have their voice heard maybe it won't make any difference because it's such a high level at which this is happening at but at least we can galvanize people behind something really meaningful and give them a course of action which is kind of where social media mm-hmm. campaigning come into right. humanitarian right i will also issues. say i think that you know one of the issues that it's our job to to give visibility to is you know the rules of war and i don't think uh people a lot of people if you were to you know pull anyone walking down the street and ask them what are the rules of war i'm not sure people could identify them but i think if i tell you what some of them are you'd go well of course you know um Wars are increasingly not, you know, between military and military and soldier versus soldier and in a desert somewhere. It's increasingly, uh, they are happening more and more conflict is um, in urban environments, in cities um, across the world where, you know, you or I could be walking down the street and suddenly, you know, uh, you know, a shell lands and and we die. Um, And that could happen to any one of us. And I think for us, it's really important that that this behavior is not normalized, that we don't have a generation of people who grow up thinking that this is okay. Um, so I think I, it's our job, it's not only our mandate, but as, as people um, uh, to, to raise awareness and say this is not acceptable, this is outrageous, and, and it should make each and every one of us extremely uncomfortable. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the, one of, one of the things that we're really trying to do um, is to is to give light to the rules of war. So you bring up some really great points, and I'm going to hopefully tackle all of them. But first, can we step back and will you tell us just how outside of even the not a target hashtag, how social media has changed for good and possibly for for worse um, humanitarian work and, and what the impact has been on it? I mean, one example for good, at least within our work, is it helps us understand the communities we serve far better. Um, you know, if there's a natural disaster, we have teams of people who can mobilize volunteers, 
to understand where have people been hit, what are the things they need. Um, because oftentimes, not in all environments, but in environments where there's connectivity, there are people taking to social media to express what's happening to them, what's happening to their surroundings. We can take that information, we can synthesize it, and we can act on it quickly. So I think that's a real positive, um, positive aspect of our work. Um, you know, certainly a negative aspect is what any other industry suffers from, which is um, an oversaturation of information um, and, and trying to tell what is accurate and what isn't accurate. Um, it's spreading rumors, rumors that can hurt human the humanitarian community, can, can impact an aid operation, can impact our neutrality, which is very important to us as humanitarians. Um, so, you know, there are certainly positives and, and negatives. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think um, for me, with Syria, we really saw war firsthand through social media, through so many people inside the conflict we were able to see what they were going through day in and day out as it was happening, which is shocking in and of itself. But then on the, the flip side, it helps to become normal, right? So you see this every day because it's on your social media feeds and you just kind of flick through because you've seen it for seven years. So I think social media is amazing because in no other way have we been able to be inside a war like Syria. But at the same time, now we need to see shocking pictures of babies on beaches before we react because we are so oversaturated by what we are seeing and I think that's a really good point for campaigning and for social media and it's something that we're looking into ultimately this year is the nuance between compassion and empathy and what type of marketing quote-unquote you can use marketing material images footage films quotes to get reactions. When you empathize with someone, you feel something, and so you get really tired because you're feeling what they're feeling. With compassion, you can see what's going on, you can understand it, but you don't have to be weighed down by the feeling. So how do we communicate what's going on in these crises without exhausting people, but still asking for their help or for a change in behavior that we're trying to create? Mm -hmm. So with Not A Target, for example, we've chosen a lot of images um, that we can try and test that with. That's interesting. So you're looking at campaigns that will drive compassion more than empathy as a way to sort of get people involved in social media. Yeah, it's a really fine line. Mm -hmm. And we are only just embarking on this sort of study with um, literally just now after World Humanitarian Day. So I can't speak with too much authority except that I agree in the sense that I'm tired of seeing what I'm seeing. But I, and if I'm tired, then everyone must be tired. And we can't have that. That's mm -hmm. not acceptable. Mm -hmm. So how do we revolutionize this continuous stream of victimization so that we can empower the people that we're helping and also give you guys out there a, a, a meaningful way of doing right. something that isn't just clicking a button? Right? Right. How do we beat slacktivism? And how do we make sure you can connect with what's going on and not be overwhelmed? It's, I mean, it's a huge task. So, yeah. Let's no, see. I think this is something we touched upon for World Press Freedom Day as well. How do you combat the apathy that people have developed with an oversaturation of social media use and what they're seeing, the images of children being harmed and and communities and countries who are going through terrible crises that now we just assume, yeah, 
Syria will always be in conflict. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to scroll past this um, to the next thing. Uh, I think that that is a challenge for anyone. I think regardless of inclusive of all industries of trying to get people feel like feeling like they can be involved without exhausting them or making them continue to go by. How has obviously with not a target we're seeing this but separately with your group what other campaigns have you worked on that have been successful through social media to get more and more people involved and really make changes on the ground I think social media can sometimes get a bad rap of yes of course people are engaging with the content but then delivering on the results we see on social media can be hard those tangible things so what kind of successes have you had so I think the key to this whole thing is understanding who you're talking to. So understanding who your target audience is and what drives them. So without going into it too much, we've we've been doing a lot of work with that over the past four or five years, especially now that we've got you know Alex on social and we're doing campaigns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I when you say this question to me, the thing that jumps to mind for me is a campaign we did for World Humanitarian Day called Share Humanity, and what we did. We got 20 stories from the field, from people that were affected by conflict or natural disaster. And we asked the target audience, the millennials, um, to donate their social media feeds. So every all news happens on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, less so in 2015, it was more Facebook. So everyone goes to their Facebook to check out what news is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took people's news feeds over so that they actually thought that their friends were telling the stories of these people as themselves. So I was in Afghanistan, I was dodging bombs, I was doing this, I was doing that. And it created, it was so disruptive, it created so much noise that people were like, what do you mean you're in Afghanistan? When did you go to Afghanistan? Or et cetera, et cetera. Um, that we, it kind of went viral. But to your point, what ended up happening was because we told these 20 stories through a way that people didn't have to leave their social media feeds, um, we were able to bring light to so many things that were happening on the ground that people started donating to these specific causes. For us, uh, it's really about covering the areas of our mandate, of course, humanitarian financing, policy. Um, We're the only part of the UN with, or in terms of the humanitarian arm that briefs the Security Council. Um, So some of our work is, you know, making sure what's happening in the Security Council is, you know, brought to social channels. And I think People find that, you know, very interesting. They find coverage of that very interesting. Um, but other than that, it's like, you know, I think what you talk about is often very hard to measure, impact, impact, you know. Mm-hmm. And certainly, um, Bell gave you a very concrete example, but I think it's also okay to say awareness itself is yeah. a means to an end, yeah, which I feel yeah. like if you look at the organization I came from before, UNHCR, you know, it's evident what they're doing is showing really positive um, examples of how refugees are making contributions to the communities that they're settled in. Mm-hmm. I would say that as a, awareness and means to an end in, in a very xenophobic age is a really important thing to do. Um, and for us, I think it's also, you know, we as OCHA, we work in a number of areas um, in coordination, but we also are the ones that collect um, all the information in a response and distill it in a way that you know makes sense to donors, that makes sense to um, people and capitals. Right. And I think sharing that those 
bits of information also across social network has an extreme value. So just understanding that these tools are powerful and using them strategically, I would say, is, is also just a huge asset uh, for us, even just in terms of awareness. Um, and I think also understanding the niche of what, what you're doing with your social networks. Like we can only do so much, and if we're mm -hmm. really good at what we do, which is coordination and sharing that information so that we can get more donations from governments or whatever it is, it's becoming experts in that as opposed to being like, okay, we're going to change the world with right. a Facebook post. Yeah. Maybe yep. we will change someone, Yeah, but also not overstretching. Right. So I want to go back to something that you had said, Alex, which was the rules of war. Um, I think that that is an incredible point um, that if you do take someone off the street, they likely don't know the rules of war. Can you sum up what the rules of war <laughs> are? And then I'd love to know more about is social media potentially changing either the rules themselves or how we ingest those rules and, and sort of think of them and are influenced by the rules of war? Uh, sure. I should I should first um, preface that I'm not a lawyer or, or an oh, IHL right. expert <laughs> or a policy as, uh, you know expert, um, but I can tell you in terms of my own understanding and in sort of the the real life applications. I mean, it's it's really to say the custodians of the Geneva Conventions, which are the conventions that that discuss and describe the rules of war, um, which was uh, created by Henri Dunant of the ICRC, the Red Cross movement that many of us know in, in Switzerland. Those were created at a time, obviously, several hundred years ago, or I think in the middle of the 1800s. I could be wrong. Um, so times have obviously changed. But, but what he observed in, in writing about these, creating these conventions and why he created them was really about understanding that, you know, you're in a battlefield, um, there are combatants, you know, this, per this group versus this group, and that there are people caught in the middle. And the fir first sort of rule of war is um, these people, civilians as we call them, are not to be casualties of war, which um, makes sense. I mean, it's, it's fair. None of us walking down the streets of New York or Paris or Damascus or Bangui should have to fear for our lives if we're just going about our day-to-day. -day. That also includes medical structures, medical structures where, you know, we are, we are treating the sick and wounded. Treating sick and wounded who are just everyday civilians or those who are casualties of war. And so these are really, you know, the, the main rules of war. I think we don't think about them. I think we think about our militaries in our countries. Um, we we think about you know military spending. We think about you know the army and and these things that that protect us and protect the various countries that we're from. But I don't think we think through very often. You know when we send these groups perhaps across a, a sea or you know or they happen on the turf that we happen to grow up in. I don't think we think about what are these rules? And one is that, you know, me as an ordinary civilian, not involved in war in any way or conflict, I have the right to live in safety. And I would say that that pretty much, I think, sums up sums up what these rules are. Sums up our understanding, for sure. Our understanding. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, and I, think, and I think that's probably as, as simple as it needs to be mm -hmm. for everyone out there to yeah. understand that. And it is, right? Like, it's common sense why we're going to hospitals. Crazy. Yeah. Do you think social media is helping raise that awareness and, and enact a little change so that these areas do not become targets in in high conflict? I think oh, short answer is probably no. Long answer is because this is happening a lot at government level. Um, with World Humanitarian Day, not a target campaign this year, we are 
we've kind of invented the first ever living petition. We all know what a petition is. Everyone signs them all the time. Now you're getting them in your inbox and they go nowhere. And maybe if they do, that's great, but you don't hear about it. At the UN, this happens sometimes. Um, it gets presented it to the Secretary General and to whoever it is, and it's great, right? Like here is a bunch of paper that's been signed. People care about this issue. It traditionally doesn't change too much at that level. Mm-hmm. So for us, what we're able to do with the living petition this year is have people sign with their selfies. So it goes back again to the target audience, right? So we understand that selfie is just an everyday habit. So we're giving meaning to the selfie now. You can sign this petition with your face and what happens is that face goes on this installation, the living petition. And because we have access to world leaders during the General Assembly, we're able to present them with this installation. So we are able to bring a lot of people's faces to see the world leaders so that the world leaders can see the faces of the people that actually care about this. It's not, um, it's actualized. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe there's an opportunity there for world leaders to understand the impact of what's going on and and what people care about. Um, And maybe that will change something. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can call for the better protection of civilians, which we are, and we can say that they are not a target and we can bring everyone to them in this digital form um, and really say to them, we're watching you and we need, what, what can you do? Can you, we're, we really need you to do something. Right. And I think we should also say that, you know, often the things that prevent conflict or that bring them to an end are political solutions. Mm-hmm. And we as humanitarians are not negotiating political solutions. It's not right. what we get involved in. We're, we're just really there to help um, in the aftermath of you know, failed political solutions or failed policies, we, we're there to help with the aftermath of that, which is often that civilians are, are vulnerable and need help. Um, and that's where we come in. So I think this is, you know, you're seeing us sort of not push the envelope, but we're, we're giving a kind of visual representation to political leaders. Um, I mean, who, it's really based on the Secretary General's words. So yeah. let's be very clear that we're not going off like we're not, not at all here. No, yeah. no, no. Um, <laughs> the Secretary General has called on member states to for better protection of civilians. He's written the report that we've backed this campaign on every, you know, the advocacy in it. Yeah. Um, and this is what this is. This is... Right. Um, I want to say cool, but that's not the best word to use. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's just it's like the visual representation of yeah, his words. Yeah, 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 it's like the of his words and cool what we're doing. doing. Right. A very different, <laughs> no, but a very different way. I mean, and oftentimes that's also our jobs is like yeah. if you ever read a, a UN resolution or you read a, a technical report, they're they're written in language that is not yeah. always the most successful. Um, and that's our job very much is to take those words and bring them to life and have them create meaning for people. Right. Um, and I think this is like a really, really really interesting and different way to do that, very novel way to do mm-hmm. that. Um, and he does mention in his report how important this kind of campaign is. Right. So I think, um, you know, watch this space. Let's see what happens at the General Assembly um, during that high-level week when we're able to present this visualization. Right. Um, maybe things will change. Absolutely. That's our hope. Yeah. I think it's a lot like um, if you're at school or you're training someone in one way of learning isn't working, right? You basically take the exact same material and present it in a different medium to try and get them engaged, right? Exactly. Um, So we hope that that will work. So to close, what advice could you get, would you give uh, people who are using social media um, to ensure that they're engaging 
in these kinds of movements um, with compassion, but also in a way that can help you and the UN and other humanitarian organizations and NGOs enact change? Um, I mean, I, I think I would say the first thing is to be personal, to be yourself, um, to put something of yourself um, into anything that you share, um, to, of course, stick to the facts, uh, obviously. Mm -hmm. For us, I mean, there's plenty of them, um, but facts sometimes can be dry without um, emotion or thought. So I can say, you know, 8 million people need aid, but it's who, who are these people? You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're people, they're complex, they have feelings, emotions. Um, so I think, you know, some element of creativity in how you present facts and your thoughts. Um, and then, you know, of course, for us, I think just promoting the, the values and the work of the UN is, is important. I think um, it's something we're certainly grateful for. We try um, on the end of every single piece of content we put out, at least longer form pieces, to say um, how people can get involved. Um, oftentimes it is donation, but we fully understand that um, not everyone can donate, which is why even, as, as Bell mentioned, our previous campaign, uh, people donated their Facebook feeds. So um, if you donate a tweet, that's valuable to us. Um, if and you, I think to add to that, it's the audience, right? Like in this era of crazy information, share stuff with people that are not your everyday friends. If we need to try and create change, it's with pe with like-minded people, but also not like-minded people. Mm -hmm. so, and social media has an amazing way of doing that. And I think we have a responsibility through our social platforms to be respectful, to be um, intelligent, and to try and spread maybe your views and engage in a conversation with someone that may have something different, right? right. And that's what we can do with what we what we try and share. If, if people can amplify that to other people that may not know about the UN, that may not know about the crises in Yemen, that may not know how to help, then one extra person being aware of that is always going to be useful. Right. Obviously, World Humanitarian Day is a really great day and, of course, a couple weeks leading up to the day way to raise awareness of these issues. But as we know, the day will be over. What can people, where should people turn to to continue to stay up to date um, with the action and, and involved? Particularly for this year, um, you can always go to the website, mm -hmm. worldhumanitarianday.org. Okay. And then um, we have a newsletter, Messengers of Humanity, that we encourage people to sign up to, to continue to hear about humanitarian issues and the way they can help. And obviously we have all of our social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, which Great. is UN. UN, uh, well, it's UN OCHA on Twitter. And then, as, as I said, the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. So and if you just Google search that, you'll find all of our social that. networks. <laughs> um, UN Humanitarian. Yeah. Okay. We touch on empathy and compassion with Belinda and Alex through consumers of social media. But what is also important to remember is having empathy and compassion for the humanitarian aid workers in the field, understanding how they 
keep themselves healthy. So we spoke to Dr. Robert Wicks, author of Night Call, Embracing Compassion and Hope in a Troubled World. He's also the author of over 50 books for professionals and the general public on a range of topics, uh, specifically including compassion. And he discusses with us the psychological side effects of humanitarianism. Thanks so much for joining us today, Robert. Can you give us an overview of what you've seen as the psychological side effects of humanitarianism? There are many psychological side effects for humanitarians. Uh, Some of the key ones, one is obviously burnout, because the seeds of caring and the seeds of burnout are the same seeds. Uh, When I was in South Africa, a woman came up to me at the break and said, uh, I can't do it anymore. Uh, I just can't. I said, what do you do? She said, I try to get justice for those, you know, who've been physically and sexually abused. And I take them to court. We get to court and they have to take a day off from work, which they can ill afford because they're poor and usually single parents. And the judge, who's often male, looks at the papers and says, oh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Make another appointment. She said, I'm a failure. Well, I let the dust settle because she was emotional. And then I said, well, who was with this woman at that point in time? And she said, well, no one other than me. I said, would it be an exaggeration to say you were closer to her than anyone else in the world? She said, no, it wouldn't. And then in as gentle a voice as I could muster, I said, and you want to leave that? I said, don't you realize we are not in the success business? We're in the faithfulness business. So burnout comes, I think, when we lose focus on the process and and start aiming at success, which is natural, but it's a prescription for disaster. Another danger is acute secondary stress, and that's what we call in my business vicarious PTSD. What happens is when we're close to people who have been traumatized or have had great loss, you know, we run the risk of of really catching their sense of despair and and really losing it ourselves. When I was working with military chaplains in uh, in Germany who had just returned from Iraq and Afghanistan, one of the full bird colonels came up to me and said, "Before you give your presentation on your book bounce, I just want to caution you." And I said, "Well, what's the caution?" He said, "There are a lot of ghosts in this room." There's nothing left inside them. So the dangers are both chronic and acute, and uh, there's obviously a broader list, but it shows that what we do is important, but it's also dangerous. What do you think drives people to go into this field to become professional helpers and healers? It's amazing, you know, the the sense of connection people feel when they're involved in humanitarian work. I think the desire to be involved in something important with people is one of the drives. Another is a recognition that the needs of the world are calls to us individually and as a community to do something. We also appreciate the benefits we receive in helping others. When Gandhi was said, 
was asked, how could you do this for India, all, all that you're doing? He looked surprised and he said, I'm not doing it for India, I'm doing it for myself. It's a circle of grace. We receive a lot when we give. And I think compassion at the heart of humanitarian and or most religious philosophies drives people a desire to make a difference. In the appendix of your book, Night Call, you give an overview of what people can do to keep themselves mentally, emotionally, and spiritually healthy. Could you expand on those steps that humanitarians should be taking as well? Yes, people can take uh, true steps to to really, you know, develop a, a healthy perspective, either to gain it, maintain it, or regain it. It's not the amount of darkness in the world or even in ourselves that matters. It's how we stand in the darkness. So one of the things that helps is having a strong self-care protocol. Uh, in other words, a program where we are psychologically, spiritually, physically making sure that we are receiving what we need to keep afloat. I think many of us in the helping and healing professions, you know, we just eat metaphorically whatever comes along. Another factor is friendship. We need four types of friends because there's a Cameroonian proverb that goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think we need the prophet, the cheerleader, the harasser who teases us because it's easy to start taking yourself too seriously, and the inspirational friend that calls us to be all that we can be without embarrassing us that we are where we are. But I encourage people to enter quiet time each day with a sense of intrigue. And that'll help with detachment. I think that what happens is we get so pulled in. uh, And you can't do that if you're a humanitarian in tough situations. And finally, I think an appreciation of failure and presence. We're all going to fail. When I worked with surgical residents, I said to them, let's be honest, during your tenure as surgeons, you're going to kill people, maybe not through malpractice, but certainly through mispractice, because you can't be on at an A-level 100% of the time. So how do we deal with that sense of failure and darkness? I don't think we realize how important just the music of presence rather than solely the lyrics of what we're doing matters. Presence and respect, they're all key things of the steps that we can take, not only with others, but with ourselves. Once again, compassion includes self-compassion. Respect includes respect for ourselves. Humanitarians may be listening to this, and they may be feeling emotionally and spiritually overwhelmed from their work at the moment. What services or treatments do you recommend that they can seek out? Uh, In terms of feeling overwhelmed, that is a beautiful thing as well as a tough thing because it's a bright flag waving that says now you can intervene with yourself or have someone stand with you in a way that you can experience post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth occurs when we don't play down our pain, but by the same token, we're open to it in a way 
that it enables us to be deeper in ways that would not have been possible had the trauma or pain not happened in the first place. So it's very, very important to seek you know, assistance from a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor, social worker, somebody who would be in a position to provide that kind of, uh, that kind of help. I would contact the National Caregiving Foundation. It has been an incredibly illuminating podcast episode, learning more about what humanitarianism is, how campaigns are affected for good or potentially, in some cases, for worse on social media, and the effects of this kind of work on the people who are on the ground doing it. It's interesting because I'm reminded of the good and the bad that comes with social media that we covered during World Press Freedom Day as well, which continues to highlight the immense power and ultimately responsibilities that we have in the way that we're utilizing and communicating on social media. We would like to thank Dr. Sarah Gelhert, Alexandra Yudolian, and Belinda Gerd from the United Nations, as well as Dr. Robert Wicks. We would also like to thank the cast and crew of the Oxford Comment for their hard work on this episode. If you haven't already, follow the Oxford Academic channels on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can follow us at OUP Academic on Twitter or Facebook. Tune into our next mini-sode where we connect with Word Bookstore about humanitarianism and publishing, as well as our next episode regarding consent on campus. I am Erin Katie Meehan. Thank you so much for listening.